0: Welcome back to Memphis Hardwood. We are working through the Grizzlies franchise oral history, and we're going to go back to Chris Harrington, who's walking us through the Pau Gasol era. So we'll resume part two of this section with the hiring of Mike Fratello as the Grizzlies head coach, and then they hire Mike Fratello from outside the organization and bring him in, and he has a good year. I mean, he ends he ends up uh, with the Grizzlies
1: in a good place. I think the coaching job Mike Fratello did that season when he came in in season and the team, I want to say was five and five, there were five and 11 when he took over. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the most underrated coaching job in Memphis Grizzlies history. Cause not only did he take over a team that was sort of in disarray and a lot of people were unhappy and Posey's hurt. And like, you know, he's got difficult personalities, frankly, and Jason Williams and Bonzi Wells and, Teams of underported expectations, and there's all this sort of bad, just bad vibes everywhere. He takes over and then Pal Gasol gets hurt. Pal Gasol misses 26 games, mm. and they still went 40 and 26. And I, I remember I wrote I actually wrote a big cover story mid-season about this. And and for Fratello, a little, little little personal Grizzlies trivia. Mike Fratello, one of two people in Grizzlies History, who's written me a personal handwritten thank you note. Um, it was about the story mm. because wow. I'll let, you, I'll let you guess who the other one was. I, I think you'd give 50 guesses and not get it. Um, <laughs> and it was what he had done was he took a team that played one way around Pal Gasol, And then Pal Gasol gets hurt. And he has to completely change offensively at least the style of play, because Palgasol was the was the the sun around which, you know, the star around which everything rotated. And now Pal's gone. And so you couldn't dump it into Pal. And, like, you know, he draws a double team. You kick the ball out for three-point shot. You couldn't do that anymore. What, are you dumping it into Brian Cardinal? you dumping it into Lorenzo Wright? Mm. He completely on the fly changed the style of play with a team that was just all role players. It was, you know, Jason Williams and Mike Miller and Shane Battier and Brian Cardinal and Lorenzo Wright. Like, that was the starting bye with Al Gasol out. And he's winning with that. Um, and so, as in terms of just pure X's and O's game, coaching the game, basketball coaching – Mike Fratello did that season is as good as anything to be Huey Brown did or Orlando Hollins did, or, or, or Dave Yeager or Taylor Jenkins has done. People yeah. didn't like Fratello that personality wise, media didn't like him. People didn't like him. He didn't get the credit he deserved, but to me, that was a great coaching job he did in the season.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, did it, did it bring a sense of renewed excitement around the team, given that it had had this disappointing start um, or was the Fratello personality issues kind of looming over that season?
1: I don't, I think it was less that within that season than just the sense that, okay, this team, he was maximizing what he had. And I think people sort of at that point knew that talent wise, there just wasn't, the, the, Jerry West knew and you saw that the next summer when there was some of the moves he made, but there was a sense that I think people had both organizationally and at that point in the fan base that talent wise, that that team was sort of, you know, was hitting its ceiling. Although I guess, I guess, Never mind. I was thinking West did make some moves that next offseason, but then made other moves a year later. There were sort of two successive summers of shaking things up. But um, I, I think I think people just had a sense that that talent wise, the team was sort of hitting its, its head against the ceiling a little bit.
0: Yeah. Was that especially clear in the playoff series? I mean, now the Grizzlies are going into their second round of the playoffs. Well, their second uh, playoff berth, right, in Memphis. First one at FedEx Forum. They're taking on the Suns that season. Um, was there a sense going into the playoffs, hey, we could actually take a couple games, right? I mean, I'm thinking specifically about Utah, right? Like year before last, right? Where the Grizzlies go in, they're serious underdogs,
1: but they steal a game, right? Like what's the sense of Memphis going into that series? I I mean, I don't think, you talk yourself into something other than getting swept. So I don't think people are like, okay, let's go get swept. But that was a Suns team that had the NBA's best, NBA best record, 62 wins that year. Um, Went on to the conference finals, a team that you know maybe could have won a title, um, that was a hard hill to climb. I don't think people were, had the expectation of getting swept. I think there was a, like, let's be competitive. Let's, you know, win a home game in our new building, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there were issues and that now the memory sort to come back a little bit about the two different summers. So, so that one, like there were issues. I mean, you know, Hubie Brown had, had issues on the front end and that all blew up and then Fratello sort of made it work. And then you get to the playoffs, you're having issues again. That that's the, the playoffs where Bonzi Wells got suspended, Oh. Um, for a game. Um, the, the legend is that he was banned from the building, banned from the practice facility. There's all kinds of stuff about, you know, he sort of went at Fratello, maybe not quite a Latrell Spreewell, P.J. Carlesimo type situation, but in the general vein, you know, he got kicked out of the building. There was a joke for years, like Bonzi Wells has been banned from, from FedEx for him. He can never come back. He gets traded there, at the, you know, that off season. But so you had the Bonzi Wells stuff that flared up that summer And then at the end of that playoffs is when Jerry West said, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to get rid of the quote unquote malcontents and get you guys who fit you. I'll give you what you want and see what you can do with it sort of the next summer. And that's when Bonzi Wells gets traded. James Posey gets traded. Jason Williams gets traded. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so that's the
1: then you you welcome Chucky Atkins. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it became if we want to sort of segue into that next season, the wonderful Fratello season, which was successful in the regular season, they won 49 games. Yeah. But that was that was where they had pivoted to a team that even even had less of a ceiling than the team before. Ah. Where now instead of Palgasol and some like exciting young players who were never going to be all-stars, it was Palgasol and like, some veteran players who had never been all-stars for the most part. And so it's like Eddie Jones, that's the Eddie Jones year. It's the yeah. it's the Bobby Jackson year. It's the Chucky Atkins year. It's the Damon Stoudemire before he, you know, he gets hurt year. Yeah. It was this is an older team, veteran team. That's going to fit the Mike Fratello. We're going to slow it down and maximize every possession and eke out wins. And it worked in the regular season, and then it didn't in the playoffs.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, regular season success. The Grizzlies win forty nine games, um, and then they they face they face off against the Mavericks and they get swept again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was really it's sort of an ignominious end to that three year playoff run, right? As you note, Chris, like zero and twelve, maybe an NBA record for yeah playoff loss and that,
1: that was one of the great sort of gut punch shots in the franchise was i can't remember whether it was game three or four but they were going to win a game they were they were about to win a game in that series and there's a there's a loose ball that there's a ball that i remember i remember the details it was a turnover or what there's a ball that sort of springs loose and it springs loose right into the hands of dirk davitsky who drills a shot to win the game that the grizzlies were about to win oh. and so yeah that was a little rough
0: oh that is so difficult and I mean, on that roster, you know, as you know, there's really not a lot of young guys. Uh, Antonio Burks was on that that team that year. I yeah. don't know how much he played, but in terms of rookies, um, you had Anthony Robertson, Lawrence Roberts.
1: Uh, that was a Team H- Warwick's
0: rookie year. That and team Warwick. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Coming out of Syracuse. Uh, but mostly, yeah, Eddie Jones in his 11th year, Damon Stoudemire in his 10th year. A
1: very different kind of philosophy, I guess, going into that 05, 06 season it was, we gave Mike Fratello a team he can win 45 to 50 games in the regular season with. And that, yeah. that was literally, there were no hopes beyond that. And that's when you saw the recognition that, okay, this has run its course. And Jerry West, you know, really blew it up more that next summer. Well,
0: right. And I mean that, that next year, 06, 07, that's the last year that Jerry West is at the helm for the Grizzlies. Mike Fratello, uh, coaches for the first 30 games of the right. season, go six and 24,
1: not a great start. Uh, what's going on that year in this final year, Jerry West, Chris? So there was a moment in the closing media session from the year before, after they get swept by the Suns and it's on, you know, now when they do this, like they, they set everybody in a room and they bring the guys out one by one and they set them at the podium and it's very sort of orchestrated. This was like a free for all, just everyone standing around on the practice court and you can walk up and talk to people as they come in. And so we're walking, I, I was standing there. I did not ask the question. I wish I had, but I was standing there. And so we're standing around Jerry West and Mike Fratello's like six, seven feet away from him having a separate conversation. And someone asked Jerry, Bonzi, well, they had traded Bonzi Wells. Um, And after after the the playoff dust up the year before against the Suns, they traded Bonzi Wells for Bobby Jackson. Bonzi Wells goes to Sacramento. He has a great playoff series for Sacramento that year, the year the Grizzlies are getting swept by the, sons. No, the Mavs. You're going to get swept by the Mavs. Bonzi Wells is in Sacramento having a good playoff series. So it's a closing, closing media session after that. And someone, someone asked Jerry West, why couldn't Bonzi Wells play for this team? And West looked at the guy and said, that's a good question. Go ask him. And he motions over to Mike Fratello. Oh, um, so that wow. was... So unlike the Hubie <laughs> thing, it was yeah. well known that, okay, the Fratello thing may be, may be about to run its course. Because not only was there obvious tension, that you know Jerry West had traded his guy Bonzi Wells, but you know because he couldn't could get along with Fratello. Um, West, I think, tried to, to West credit. He was right about this. After that third straight sweep with this older team, he decided, okay, this is not working. Let's try to re let's try to rebuild this team around Paul Gasol while we still can. And that's when he traded Battier, who I don't think Wes was ever crazy about. He traded Battier for Rudy Gay. That was a big swing. Let's take the the athlete who's got Mm -hmm. star potential. Mm -hmm. So he does um, Battier for Rudy Gay. Then now you're getting more Akeem Warwick, more Dante Jones. Um, Kyle Lowry comes in, also a first-round pick. It was Mm -hmm. let's get younger and more athletic around Powell and try to rebuild this without completely blowing it up. Mm -hmm. Powell's the only high-upside guy we have. Let's rebuild it around Powell. That was not a team built for Mike Fratello. And mm. everyone knew going into that season, this is not – for. Fratello and West are not feeling great about each other right now. And he's he's changed this team to be the kind of team Mike Fratello doesn't want. Mike Fratello doesn't want to play rookies. Mm. And then on top of that, Paul Gasol gets hurt. That summer, I believe, playing for the Spanish team, he had a foot injury. Mm-hmm. So now on top of all this other stuff, you're starting the season without Paul Gasol, who mm. missed the first 22 games. Fratello played the first 30, you said. I think Paul mm-hmm. missed the first 22. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing – it that season, unlike year two or the first year in the pyramid when with Hubie, when it was a it was a surprising disappointment, mm. that was a very unsurprising disappointment, really.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, as you say, that was the year that Rudy Gay was drafted to the franchise, coming out of UConn. Alexander Johnson, another rookie. Uh, Terrence Kinsey, Kyle Lowry, he now of Miami, Toronto uh, championship status. So you've got all these rookies on here, um, and you don't have palgasol Gasol. It's going to be hard to win. And they didn't. Yeah.
1: And you had a coach who, coach who didn't want to be playing rookies anyway. That was not a, not a Mike Fratello kind of, kind of situation. So that, but that, 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 that yeah. fell apart very quickly.
0: That moment gives rise to the Tony Baroni era. Brody ball. <laughs> so now we've got baroni ball. He goes 16 and 36, uh, in that year. Um, Chris, t- tell us about Tony.
1: <laughs> oh, Tony was great. I love Tony. Uh, one of my favorite people in, in Grizzlies history, Uh, A very blunt, very funny guy. Um, That was an interim coaching situation that was always going to be an interim coaching situation. And I think he knew that. Uh, It was because he had been the, I don't remember whether, I think his title was player personnel director. He had come down. He had been an assistant coach under Hubie and then gone gone, gone up into the front office when Fratello came in and basically brought him back down. And at that point, Jerry West was like, we want to play the kids and we want to play faster. We want to be anti-Fratello. Patello was let's play slow with veterans but West was like we're gonna lose let's play fast with the kids and baroni was basically willing to do that and so it mm-hmm. was we're playing fast with the kids and we're losing a whole bunch and that's what <laughs> happened and he played on the string and then it uh, wasn't boring <laughs> no I mean I mean at some point when you're losing but yeah it was it was probably the right thing to do oh uh, could you have done the same approach with a coach that was going to give a little bit more structure? Yeah, well, sure. maybe in retrospect, but it was fine. But but, but Brody was great. Rest in peace, Tony Brody senior. Um, yeah, he was great. And he
0: stayed in the franchise, Chris, right after he, after he coached, he went back to, to the general manager's office.
1: Do we, do we curse on this podcast? <laughs> you can, yes, you can curse. <laughs> okay. It's going to be a quote. So one of my favorite moments, and this is a mild curse, um, one of my favorite moments ever covering the Grizzlies was whatever, I don't remember what year it was at this point, um, whatever year that they were, Michael Heisley was allegedly about to sell the team to Brian Davis and Christian Leitner. Oh, right. So it, they, they even have a press conference about it. And Christian Leitner announces to the room, no one sees this coming that he's going to be an owner player of the team. And like, and everyone laughs. And it turns out he's completely serious about it. And everyone's <laughs> looking around like, what is happening here? <laughs> So, so we're at that point, the, we leave the press conference. Everyone, for some reason, is walking from the press conference room to the practice court for some reason I don't remember. But we're all just walking, and I, I happen to be walking next to Tony Browne Sr. And he leans over to me, and he whispers sort of Soto voce, "Do you believe this shit? And that was when I God bless Tony. Like was, he was at that point, he was in the front office. He was like, This is the craziest stuff I've you know. You believe yeah. that shit. That's yeah. that's how I associate <laughs> <Yeah>. Tony Broni senior. Oh my goodness. Yeah.
0: Now, did did his son work for the franchise as well, Chris?
1: Yeah, Tony Broni Jr. was yeah. the scouting director. I mean, some of these things varied year to year, because I yeah. think initially Baroni Sr. was the scouting director, and then Baroni Sr. moved up to player personnel and then Tony Jr. Brown Jr. became the scouting director. Mm-hmm. So he was with the franchise for most of that time, um really until the ownership changed. He got booted right after the ownership changed. Both the Bronies did. yeah, uh, but yeah, Tony Jr. was there for a long time. I knew him, I knew him well. Um, you know, and so, yeah, long time. So tell
0: us about Jerry West's departure, um the arrival of Chris Wallace and the start of coach Mike. Iveroni.
1: So at this point, at this point, I don't really remember very well why, even like the stated reason why West was leaving, other than like you know, okay, this has been fun. It's I've been here long enough. It's time to move on. It was not an acrimonious departure because Jerry West helped pick his successor. You know, both the head Jerry West hired Mark Iveroni, and Jerry West kind of, sort of hired Chris Wallace, or at least was involved in, in that decision. The rumor at the time was that David Griffin was going to get hired to run the team. David Griffin later went on to run the Cleveland Cavaliers, currently running the New Orleans Pelicans. The Pelicans. yeah. He was in the front office in a sort of a secondary position, assistant GM or something. He was in the front office with the Suns, like with Ivoroni, And there was – and people thought it was a package deal, that it was going to be Ivoroni and David Griffin. Oddly enough, the coach gets hired first. So they hire Ivoroni. And there was an expectation, including internally, people in the organization said they expected this too, that David Griffin was following, was going to be the GM, and then Griffin backed out. And one of the things I heard at the time was that David Griffin didn't, wouldn't have wanted Ivoroni to be his coach, even though from the outside people thought that was the two Phoenix guys you're importing mm-hmm. the Phoenix thing. Um, that may not have been true. But for whatever reason, they thought they were getting Griffin, was my understanding. Griffin backed out kind of at the last minute. And Wallace was kind of a quick pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one of the rumors at the time was it was it was agent related, like either he shared an agent with Griffin, or shared an agent with West, or it was some you know, like the rumor was like, well, you know, Griffin didn't work out, but the agent said, okay, but I got this other guy, and it was kind of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But Wallace had been in the front office in Boston in some significant capacities. And so it wasn't like an odd hire at all. It was just a sort of an unexpected one. Mm-hmm. But the timing of all that was weird because Ivoroni was hired before the coat, before before Wallace. Wallace was not involved in Iveroni hire at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the draft that year was kind of uh, coming and going. And so Jerry West was involved in the draft and Chris Wallace was involved in the draft. And it was, it, the transition was a little odd, even yeah. though it was not acrimonious. Do you do you
0: know who made the choice to take Mike Conley?
1: Um, I I think at the end that was that was a consensus decision. Like who ultimately was the Chris Wallace or what? It's it's unclear. Like who was the final Michael Heisley is still, or is always the final call. But from a basketball standpoint, who was ultimately the decision maker is still a little unclear. Mm-hmm. But I unlike unlike lots of other picks over the years, there's there's there was never a sense of controversy around picking Conley. Now yeah. I will say that a lot of people in the organization wanted out Horford. And mm. there was hope that Conley would go third, and Al Horford would fall to the Grizzlies pick at four. Mm. Instead, Horford went third. But once Horford went third, I don't think there was a lot of there was not a not a lot of hand wringing I detected internally. I think I think it was pretty much a consensus pick. Take mm. Mike Conley in that draft
0: mm. just by the by, you know, when when Mike was traded out to Utah, I started following the jazz just a little bit, really hoping that like, you know, his brother from another mother, he would be able to notch a championship with Utah. I mean, yeah. when, when the Grizzlies were not very good, right, I was pulling for Mike, basically, um, and it's just kind of sad now to see. Hey, the Mike jazz- Conley.
1: He might get traded to a contender, Chris. This is what I was about to say. His my, Mike Conley's title hopes are not finished. They're only finished in Utah. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot some more, you know, that team moved Rudy Gobert, and I think they're not done moving people. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me to see Mike Conley somewhere else.
0: Oh, I love that. That gives me chills. Hopefully that works out for Mike. Well, yeah. I, I say that as well because Big Al was, of course, in the NBA Finals last year and playing his ass off. Like great. <laughs> he, he was so good. Um. All right. So um, Mark Ivarone, Chris Wallace, you've got really a totally new regime in Memphis starting in that 07 and 08 season. You got Mike Conley, Kyle Lowry on the same roster. Chris, I don't know if this was just something that was inherited down, but it just seemed like there was a lot of
1: conversation about who's our starting point guard of the future here. Yeah. I mean that whole thing, I, I really liked Mark Ivarone personally quite a bit. Um, He just didn't, he just did a bad job. He just did. Uh, and I think he, 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 he approached the job with a lot of uncertainty that uncertainty was most reflected in the point guard management, but it was a rough situation because Jerry West had basically handpicked him and then Jerry West leaves. And so Michael Heisley, I don't know. He just like, well, Jerry West says you're the guy. I don't think, I don't think Michael Heisley had a lot of personal devotion to the, to the Iveroni idea. Mm -hmm. Chris Wallace, the GM was not involved in hiring him at all. wasn't his guy. Mm. Um, and it was, it was similar, it was sort of in some ways a precursor to the David Fizdale thing that went awry years later, oh, where yeah. it was, we're going to hire the lead assistant for the hot team at the moment. And we're going to import this other team's culture. And so Phoenix was the hot thing at that time. It was like, we're going to take some of that Phoenix magic and we're going to bring it here by hiring the Phoenix assistant coach. And it just didn't work. And the point guard thing, which you asked about, was the source of the most sort of oddness around it. You know, they, they had Kyle Lowry, who they'd taken with a late first-round pick the year before. He got injured after, like, 10 games. He actually didn't play that much as a rookie. Mm-hmm. They take Mike Conley fourth overall. It's clear it's clear that Mike Conley is the point guard of the future here when you take him fourth. Lowry, I think, was good already. I was a fan of Lowry early on. But... Um, but it was clear, like, you're know, taking Mike Conley third. Like, he's your point guard. Mm-hmm. And Mark Alvaroni had this weird thing early on where he, for whatever reason, and he actually told me later on, like, after he was fired, he actually told me this. Hmm. Um, he didn't tell me why he did it, but he said, you know, I really messed up the whole this whole Mike Conley thing. Oh. For some reason, he decided he wasn't going to play Mike Conley during home games at <laughs> the start of Mike Conley's rookie year. And so Conley was only playing on the road. He wasn't playing at home. This rookie, you just taking him fourth overall. And then he gets hurt. And so I think it was like January or something of that year before Mike Connolly made his debut at FedEx Forum.
0: Wow. That's so wild.
1: Weird. That would weird. Be It was, very it was weird. totally weird. Totally weird. Yeah. What was the rationale for
0: the home away I, thing?
1: It's not clear. He never really said unless it was like a pressure thing or something. It was just, there was a lot of overthinking going on with Mark Averoni. Yeah. They, they even did promos really? of like, you know, hyping up the seasons, Mark Averoni in his office, like, you know, with the pen and the pad and the, you know, and the, the it was almost like the beautiful mind thing. Right. And drawing, yeah. on, drawing on the board and, <laughs> and they really hyped up like Mark Ivarone coaching genius, you know, he'd never been a head coach before. And I think he, I just think he overthought lots of stuff, yeah. a lot of uncertainty, super nice guy, did a really, really bad coaching job.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, this is Pau Gasol's last season in Memphis, right. With Ivoroni. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you look at the roster, it looks pretty decent. You got Pau Gasol, you got Rudy Gay, you got Kyle Lowry, you got Mike Miller, you got Mike Conley, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? It's like, Hey, you could maybe no, do It definitely should have been roster. better.
1: It was, you know, if you can see the fingerprints of coaching in a negative way, you kind of can that season. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the Grizzlies obviously don't make the playoffs, uh, 22 and 60. And then the 0809 season, uh, Chris really isn't much better. In fact, it's it's, it's kind of worse in some ways. You have three coaches, Mark Ivoroni, Johnny Davis, an interim coach for two games. And then Lionel Hollins comes in. Um, we trade out Pau Gasol and bring in this other Gasol. Right. Um, what was it like going into that season where people like, Oh, we need to move on from pal. Like just take us into that moment a little
1: bit. So at this point, my memory is actually a little bit fuzzier on the timing of this than on the earlier stuff we talked about in terms of the order of operations. But with the Pal thing, by the time he was traded, there was a general sense of, okay, it's time. It was – he had been complaining about back stuff. Um, he seemed unhappy. The organization seemed unhappy with him. Yeah. The team, there was a sense that, okay, we're not going to – the Jerry West idea of let's rebuild it around Pal we're now two years into this. It's not really working. Mm-hmm. And so I think by the time Powell was traded, there was a general sense of, okay, it's, this has run its course. It's time to start over. Um, now the, I, the notion of trading Powell is different from the actual trade of Powell and how people reacted to that. Yeah, yeah. I think most people got comfortable with the notion of Powell gasol being traded when he got traded, people lost their mind about that. Um, I feel like and we don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here, probably at this late stage in the pod. But this is one of the Grizzlies' topics, if not the number one Grizzlies' topic. I feel most qualified to to, to, to discuss. Um, I was the I was like the only person at the time who was who who had an opinion about this trade that I think is was different than than other people, and I think is held up fairly well. Mm-hmm. My opinion at the time was this is not a great return for Powell. But the reason people are freaking out is the relative reputations of the franchises involved, and not the substance of the deal. Uh. I still think that is true, and I think it's, it, it is. I think it is. It's instructive to look at the way people reacted negatively to the Paul Gasol trade, and compare it to the way people reacted positive, positively to the Mike Conley to Utah trade. They mm. are very similar kinds of trades. Mm. Uh, you're trading, uh, you know, a, a high pri- a high-priced star player at the beginning of a rebuild for a potpourri package of draft picks and expiring contracts and, and quote unquote assets. And I think the difference is that the Pau trade was sort of at the dawn of that era of those style of trades that people weren't used to yet. Yeah. And by the time the Conley thing come around, people are used to like the logic and sort of the game theory of that kind of trade as part of a rebuild.
0: And wasn't it part of part of it that the fact that like, as a city, we were just kind of such rookies at understanding the kind of like wisdom of all that, and, and now by the
1: time Conley exited, it was kind of like we, we were kind of more. Uh, as a city, we were more—I don't know—educated about how that stuff well, works. Well, I, I do think there was there's a difference in terms of local reaction, in terms of education. But I think to the point I was making, three it was it was NBA wide. Cause it wasn't just Memphis uh, fans that were upset at the Powell trade. It was like the rest of the league, oh, you know, wow. Greg, 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 Greg Popovich wanted to like chain himself to like, you know, a court building or something <laughs> to stop this trade. Holy I cow. mean, people, people lost their minds about that trade. Um, I think partly because he was, it was the Lakers. He was going to again. And there was the whole sense of like, Oh, the that's farm, right. This whole the whole sense of like, you know, the small market is the farm team for the big market and all that kind of stuff. I think in the exact, mm. and I, and I, I made this case at the time, if the exact same trade had happened and it was, the Chicago, Chicago Bulls trading Paul Gasol to, you know, the Dallas Mavericks for the same stuff. It would not have been reacted to the same way. It was the lowly Memphis Grizzlies feeding a star to the great Los Angeles Lakers as part of why people right. freaked out about that. Yeah. But I do think mm-hmm. it was – it wasn't just that Memphis wasn't as educated about sort of the – the sort of inside basketball-y aspects of that kind of trade. Yeah. I said the whole league wasn't. It was. It was relatively early in that. Now it wasn't the first trade of that type. There had been other trades like like that. Like the, when Vince Carter got traded, it was another like you know fifty cents on the dollar from a basketball standpoint. But there was other logic to it, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I to me to me the Paul Gasol trade was a trade that made sense. If it wasn't, if it was other, if it was underwhelming, which I do think it was, there was a logic to it. And I think that logic would, it would you know, let's watch them. what happens, you know, look what happened with the Rudy Gobert trade, like, you know, a week ago, oh, yeah. what they get from Rudy Gobert? They just got a bunch of draft picks and expiring contracts. Like they didn't, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. I, I think that that kind of trade has become more common now than it was at the time. I remember at the time feeling like, like Mark Gasol was the most like disposable, like throw in almost slap in the face because he was a Gasol. Uh, did you have any sense or did other people in the kind of like basketball writing community have any sense uh, of, of Mark's talent? Because I remember something to the effect of I remember Powell saying, you watch, <laughs> he's good. And I remember thinking, well, I hope that's not just a throwaway comment that he's making himself feel better about. But did you have any sense that Marcus always was going to be good? i tell you who had a sense about it. Chris Wallace did. And people love to trash Chris Wallace. Um, and it's not people what people will say about that in retrospect, they'll say, they'll say, you know, they didn't know Marcus Ol was gonna be an all star. He was just a throw in. as if there's not like a Grand Canyon gulf between all-star and throw in. Yeah. Here, mm. this is not this is not hindsight. This is what Chris Wallace told me, told me directly, like the day or the day or two days after he made that trade. I, I had a long interview with him. Which was published online in the Memphis Flyer and has now disappeared from the internet. I don't have a copy of it. It's just gone forever. But I did a long QA with Chris Wallace when I went through all the details of that trade. And the, what he said about Marcus All, I thought was extremely persuasive in the moment. And he what he said was not, this guy's gonna be an all-star. That is not what he said. What he said was, yes, Marcus All had been the 48th pick the year before, but he had gone back to Spain, which at the time was considered the second best league in the world at the NBA. He had gone back to Spain. His body had improved. He won the MVP of that league the next season. The two previous MVPs of that league were Andres Nocioni and Walter Hermann, who both after that went to the NBA and were good NBA players at, at, at age like 26, 27. Marcus all at age 22, 23, went back to the Spanish league, won MVP of that league. It's a 22, 23-year-old center. And what Chris Wallace told me at the time was if Marcus all was eligible for the coming draft, not the one before, but the one ahead, he wasn't gonna be the 48th pick. He would have been like the 10th pick. He would have been like a late lottery pick. And so Chris Wallace's opinion at the time, not hindsight, but at the time, was not Marcus Al's a throw-in, and it was not Marcus Al is going to be a future star. It was Marcus All is the asset equivalent of a late lottery pick. That's how I they see. viewed him at the time, at the moment they made that trade. And to me, his case was was quite reasonable and quite persuasive and quite grounded in evidence that that was a real, yeah. like, that was a real, that was a, a legitimate asset evaluation of Marcus all at the time. That's yeah. great context.
0: And yeah. not for the first time or the last time, Chris Wallace would be right. <laughs> so, we'll you, you re- know,
1: <laughs> lo- lo- long track records are mixed track records. And yeah. so when you have a track record as long as Chris Wallace, there's going to be lots of good stuff in it. And, and we all know there's lots of bad stuff in it, too.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So Powell's gone. I mean, he's really been – I mean, Chris, it's fair to say Powell had been the fixture of the franchise since the franchise came to Memphis.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, everyone thought it would be at the beginning, but very quickly, like I think it was Powell Gasol's fourth game as the NBA player, he scored, I want to say, 27 points at Phoenix and then never looked back, one rookie of the year and was an all-star level player his whole time in Memphis. I I think in some ways still, still a little bit of an underrated player in terms of how good he was in Memphis. But he never had he never he never had a posse right he never he never had you know it was Paul Gasol and some other guys some of those guys were good Posey and Miller and Battier and Will but he never had another All Star caliber teammate and so you know the team never won he had the kind of style of play that turned off some people he was more of a finesse kind of player in a in a city that even then sort of fancied itself as we like the tough guys he was not a tough guy. And so, you know, I, I I think I think Pal Gasol is probably, though still underrated in Memphis, probably more finally remembered in retrospect than he was in the moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think part of it probably has to be like you've got this new franchise, you've got a, a potential cornerstone player. You want to put a lot of hope into that. And, you know, after some years where you don't have the success that you want, you got to rethink that and you send Pal out. And that leaves us with this 08-09 season. And that's where I want to leave it here. And we'll, um, we're will we going to go through this season and then um, we'll pivot uh, to get it into the grit and grind era, which really begins with some players who are on this 08-09 roster. Mike Conley um, has got a year under his belt. Marcus Saul is a rookie. Rudy Gay has got two years under his belt. Uh, and we also bring in a guy named OJ Mayo. Chris, do you want to tell us just a little bit about what it was like getting OJ Mayo for this roster as well?
1: uh mayo so they made a draft night trade um to get mayo and, and it was it was a it was sort of a little bit of a messy thing because it was it didn't seem entirely predetermined the way most draft night trades are um the grizzlies were the fifth pick in that draft um everyone was very high on kevin love mark Ivoroni was very high on kevin love uh, mayo goes third they take kevin love fifth And then later on that night, they end up making a trade with Minnesota to swap Love and Mayo and there's some other stuff involved. And it's very unusual draft night trade in that it was not pre-negotiated. It it sort of happened later and apparently happened at the ownership level and was controversial right up until the moment it happened. Um, Mark Averoni was opposed. My understanding was opposed to that trade. There's one thing Mark Averoni got right um, was opposed to that trade. There were other people in front of us who weren't enthusiastic about it. Um, Chris Wallace wanted to go up, go after OJ Mayo. And Mike Isley's attitude was, let's go get the best player. Mm-hmm. And Love was considered the best player. Um, he was not actually better in retrospect. I wasn't convinced he was better at the time. I I, I was a big fan of Kevin Love in that draft. I was just not as sure about Mayo because I had not watched him as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know there were there were multiple people in the in the organization, not just Ivoroni, who that was not what they would have done at the time. And in retrospect, it looked good the first year because Mayo finished, I think, second, to Eric Rose the rookie of the year. I was yeah. eighteen points a game, yeah. but I I felt pretty early on. I wrote a column about Mayo, I think, his rookie year, where I sort of said, and I don't know whether this still exists on the internet or not, but I, I sort of asked if he's going to be an all star player. What kind of all star player is he going to be? If I remember correctly, and this is all coming back to me sort of on the, it was, is he going to be a you know a a ball dominant elite scoring guard, Dwayne Wadey type? Is he going to be a big point guard, Chauncey Billups type, or is he going to be a shooting specialist, Ray Allen, you know, Rip Mm -hmm. Hamilton type? And I sort of went through the numbers on like, you know, his usage and his turnovers and all this kind of stuff. And I sort of determined he's really a shooter and like, maybe he'll be a great shooter maybe he'll be a Ray Allen shooter or a Rip Mm -hmm. Hamilton shooter. But to me, that was the lowest upside of the three paths. Then it seemed pretty clear after his rookie year that that was the path he was on and so I think if, if stuff in his personal life had not, you know, derailed him, he would have had a better career, but I don't think Mayo was ever going to be an all-star.
0: Yeah. I mean, 41% three point shooter for his career on four attempts per game. He he did end up being a good shooter. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad. We won't go down the OJ Mayo rabbit hole, but you know, um, you're right. He could have had a better career, obviously plays a prominent role in some of those early grit grind teams, um, but let's, let's leave it here, Chris, um, Lionel Hollins comes in, um, really about halfway through the season. Um, it, he, is he named interim coach, interim head coach? Like, tell us a little bit about that choice and then how we end up with Lionel
1: and we'll leave it, it was there. The Lionel Hollins hire was unconventional and the unconventional nature of it fed into a lot of cynicism about it in some quarters. And I will confess, I was one of those quarters, um, there were other people who were not, who had closer relationships to Lionel, who loved the hire people who did not have, did, did not have existing close relationships to Lionel were, um, highly skeptical of the hire. And I think for good reason, we were highly skeptical. And it wasn't about Lionel specifically. It was that he was given, you know, Mark, Mark Averone, who they had fired, had a year and a half left of his contract. They gave Lionel Hollins a year, year and a half long, long contract to be the new coach. That just doesn't happen. It's a very odd thing. Yeah. Usually you hire a new coach, even if you're still paying the old coach or give them like a three year deal or whatever. They gave him like a year and a half long deal, which seemed a little sketchy. And the fact that he had the pre-existing relationship, he had two previous shorter interim stints with the team. Mm-hmm. He had, you know, including in Vancouver, um, had been on Hubie Brown's staff in Memphis. Um, it felt like at the time Michael Heisley took the path of least resistance and the path, path of least expense And went out and got the guy guy he personally knew who would take the short-term deal. And instead of just going out and I'm going to get the best coach, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out he did. that may have been true. It may have been the path of least resistance and the path of of least expense. But he also went out and got the best coach or got a really good coach. Mm -hmm. And so Lionel dealt with a lot of um, skepticism when he came in. And he disproved it all. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, he ended up you know, probably the best coach in franchise history, certainly the best resume of any coach in franchise history, but it was an unconventional hire in terms of the nature of the contract at the time. And that bred into a lot of skepticism about it. And there was already skepticism because of how poorly the Ivoroni stuff had gone. And and some of the other sort of messiness around the franchise at that time.
0: Well, and I mean, he had been a coach with Vancouver an assistant coach since the beginning. I mean, he'd been with the franchise all the way through. Um, Right. I mean, so it's, I don't know, that's kind of interesting because it's sort of an inside hire. I don't know, you tend to want to, I guess, do national searches or whatever. But like you say, maybe it seemed like at the time that was the path of of least resistance. He was just there, right? He was
1: just well, there. Well, no, he wasn't there. He was actually, he had, he had gone because he was not on Ivarone's staff. He was actually, oh. I want to say, an assistant with Milwaukee. And so they brought him back. Oh. He had been, he had, he had had multiple runs with the franchise and Heisley knew him well. Chris Wallace knew him well, but he was not an assistant for Ivoroni. Gotcha. OK, so they brought him back in. I that's gotcha. why you had the, the Johnny Davis thing for a few games in between.
0: I see. OK, that's how we're doing the oral history. Y'all we're getting the facts right here. That's right. So so Lionel Hollins, you know, comes in, he wraps up this 0809 se- season 13 and 26. Um, not a great record, but this, this roster, right. For those of us who got into the Grizzlies in that 2011 run starts to look a little bit more familiar. Darrell Arthur (laughs) double zero is on this roster. He's a rookie right in that first year. Um, Mike, great rookie class.
1: Mark, Mark Marcus all Darrell, Arthur OJ Mayo a really good rookie class that year.
0: Yeah. And I mean, these are guys who would make contributions. Some of them obviously larger than others going into the grit and grind era. Um, Chris, we're going to, before we drop out of here, tell us, was there a feeling in that season, before we get to the 9-10 season and, and it's a it's a good season, was there a feeling in that season that things were going to work out with Lionel Hollins? How does that season end, right? Are folks kind of
1: excited? Where, where are we in 08-09 in the summer? Um, I think certainly much like when Hubie came in mid-season earlier, you could see the fingerprints of more discipline and more structure. And I think people felt like Lionel had done a good job with what he had to work with when he came in midseason. I don't think people were yet convinced. Okay, he's the coach for the long term. And there was a lot of there was actually a lot of speculation at the time that okay, he'll serve out this next year, you know, on the year and a half long contract. He'll serve out the next year, and then he'll move up into the to a, some kind of front office job, assistant GM or whatever. And that then they'll bring once once he's served out the rest of Ivoroni's tenure basically, then they'd bring in the, like the quote unquote real coach. So I think there was still some, there's still some suspicion about whether he was the long-term coach even after that half season, but he certainly, I think people felt good about the coaching job he was doing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The next season is where we're going to pick up with the Memphis Grizzlies oral history here on Memphis hardwood. That is a season that includes the acquisition of Zach Randolph who had his number retired at FedEx forum this past year I can't think of anybody on the planet that is more qualified and frankly, more, um, fun to talk to you about this, Chris, this has been really a wonderful ride for me. I've learned a ton and just want to thank you for doing this with us, man. Hey, it was great with you guys. Uh, I appreciate, appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. There's a Thank lot, so to there's a lot to cover here with the Grizzlies this summer and going into next season. Um, and hopefully our friend Chris will agree to come back and talk some contemporaneous hoops, but you can find him on Twitter at Chris Harrington. Did I get that right? Yep. And, uh, he's, uh, there on the daily Memphian, always writing the stuff that you need to read. Not only the first thing you need to read, but the last thing you need to read about what's happening with the Memphis Grizzlies. So Chris, once again, thanks for joining us on Memphis hardwood. It's been a blast. All right. Thanks guys. Absolutely. Marvin, thank you for joining us as well. Absolutely. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Um, this is an epic pod about the Grizzlies first seasons in Memphis. And we are really looking forward to getting into the grit and grind era. So stay tuned because that's coming up right after this. Take care, everybody. And go Grizzlies.